The Bloody Elbow Podcast Network is moving. That's right. We're moving from SoundCloud and YouTube to Substack. It will still be available through your current iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher subscriptions, but the main home of the Bloody Elbow Podcast Network will now be on Substack. While most of our audio content will remain free, we'll be asking listeners to please get a paid subscription to support the shows, which are now ad-free. Please give us your email and we'll send you notices and summaries of every new episode. Become a paid subscriber and get bonus segments only available to those who've pledged their support. Sign up at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com today. Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Here are your hosts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection. Start with me, I was going to say starring, like I get like a walk on grit. Gotten the big heads into the substack. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. Starring me, Zane Simon, my co-star, featuring uh, Connor featuring guest, special guest, and introducing Connor Bush. That's right. Uh, we're back once again for this week's card going down at the. There's another T-Mobile Center. What is even the point of that? I know. Going down at the <laughs> T-Mobile Center in Kansas City, Missouri. Man, if ever there's like a a clear tier one tier two it's like oh i'm i'm, I'm performing at the t-mobile center and people are like oh in vegas and you have to be like mm, no kansas well, I, city I, I think i'd rather hang out in kansas city than vegas to be honest well can i just skip them both <laughs> kansas city has barbecue what's in vegas oh, it's a bunch of, bunch true, of bullshit. true and blackjack and that's, yeah that's bad yeah the reason that dana white stays there all the time <laughs> anyway at the two mobile arena yeah at the two mobile arena mm-hmm. uh and we've got a fight night card going down this week that um it's not bad it's a pretty good fight night card honestly it's very good yeah yeah it's got absolutely. a great main event Max Holloway at uh, Arnold Allen. Uh, it has other fun fights on the main card. Of you know, Brandon Royville versus uh, Matthews Nikolai was getting really screwed hard here because yeah, they just refuse to place flyweight fights anywhere except on the prelims, even though these are like guys who are in title contention. I, I don't know. Yeah, this is it is clearly unquestionably the co-main event fight on this card. Yeah, no doubt. Unquestionably, more than Barboza Quarantillo, more than Dustin Jacoby Asmat Merzikhanov, way more than Iwan Kudalava versus Tanner <laughs> Bozer. Yeah, why the hell is that on the main? Oh, I know we, oh, we complain about this all the time, but it's because they keep doing it. Yeah. Why is it 
you have two light heavyweight fights that don't mean a damn yeah. on the main card over this top flyweight fight. Ludicrous. Yep. Ludicrous. All right. And for that We're matter, why, for that matter, why, why is uh, Barboza Quarantillo on the main card? You could have had Herman Cummings up there. That's right. We got you in the lightweights up there. What is this crap? Yeah, Putting a featherweight back. Yeah, come on, UFC. <laughs> so, but uh, it does at least mean that all the way down into the prelims, there are good, interesting fights up and yes. down the card. Yeah. So it, it is a top to bottom, very good fi- uh, fight night card. And, uh, you, you know, they've been making a habit of this, even if they're still just kind of treating the uh, the apex as their we can dump anything here, uh, safety valve. At least when they're traveling away to other cities, even for fight nights, they're actually trying to, like, get people in the building and sell a few tickets and things yeah. like that. They should rename the Apex the Apex uh, the Nadir. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the penultimate fighting championship. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about this main event: Max Holloway, Arnold Allen, and we mm-hmm. were just kind of talking about this a little bit before we jumped on the call here. Arnold Allen has remained an enigma Mm -hmm. he was a dude who when he was coming up through cage warriors all the talk about him was how like he is a a boxer and you know his dad was a fighter and alan had trained to box and all that so he had great hands and was just you know a, a, a striker to be feared. And then you actually watch his fights going up through Cage Warriors and into the UFC. And you'd see a scrappy dude who would just kind of do anything, go anywhere, was mostly notable for his gas tank and relentless aggression and willingness to push the pace and keep wrestling and grinding on people and trying things and yeah you know punishing people past the point that they were exhausted it was not was... really it, yeah it, it was not really a, you 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 would be hard pressed to see the boxing talent on display in a, in a classic arnold allen fight yeah yeah it was more it, more than anything else defined by like his determination to double down yeah whenever fights got tough which I think is a a great characteristic for a fighter to have. Uh-huh. He is just innately scrappy, but uh, uh, yeah, he you know he, he just kind of looked scrappy rather than good. Good. Uh, it turns out he does have power. He does have power, and he does have some form. Um, it's taken a while to get there. It was right around really the Rinaldi Melendez point. Yeah. Where he started turning himself into a cautious outfighter. Yeah. Who would really just stay on the outside, sit behind hard single shots and kicks, and play a very crafty, careful game. And uh, that's kind of what we have remained seeing, um, with the exception of that Dan Hooker fight, where he just decided to go absolutely ape shit on Dan Hooker. 
Yeah, and I, what I would also say, we've seen the uh, a sort of maturation of the uh, of the outfighting as well. Yeah. I, I think certainly uh, this is the difficulty with Allen is that he looked good. It looked like he was learning from essentially getting a an unusually like slow road to the title, mm-hmm. and um. So like he looked good, and then you have seen some of what you want to see out of prospects as he's as his level of competition has risen, yep. namely the uh, the fact that he is like stepping up and crushing them, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I mean that's like you know like we've praised Islam Makachev for the same thing that it's like his level of competition got higher and he just like got more dangerous along with it. Yep. Um, that's a very good sign, but there are there are just asterisks on the two big steps up that are yep. hard to hard to ignore. There's the fact that um there's the fact that Dan Hooker was like on a losing streak and made I think we can all agree and I think we did even before we had the benefit of hindsight it was an ill-advised weight class change. Yeah, my god, it is he made he, it's just one of those times where like you just want to yell at a fight. You don't know these people well enough. Yeah. So you can't, and you don't haven't heard all the conversations they're having and all that. You don't know what particular thing is driving them. But the from the outside, the macro level view, you just want to grab them and shake them and be like, no matter what micro level argument you are hearing and thinking for this, this is a really terrible idea. Stop it. Yes. What are you doing? And that was definitely Dan Hooker going back to featherweight. Yeah. And and I think more than even a I don't think he was like despondent. I think he was over ambitious. I think he thought he was going to revitalize his title hopes basically in a new division. Yeah. Because he had kind of been shut out of the title picture at lightweight. But lightweight was obviously where he was good and Allen uncharacteristically violent. Um yep. just completely thrashed him. It remains a question for me how sustainable that approach would have been mm-hmm. if he hadn't got the finish. Allen has always had good conditioning, but uh, he has also had periods in the middle of fights where he has had to drop his output to recover. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what would have happened. It uh, also, you know, if you want to talk about the the classic Arnold Allen being a fighter where you're like, you really pump it, pumping this dude up as a top boxer? Yeah. Um, aggressive charge forward on the front foot Arnold Allen once again did not look like a very clean puncher no 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 he was going all just hell bent for leather like nothing but yeah. power in that fight yeah um and he got dropped too <laughs> yeah like it... credit to him that he continued to go ape shit after getting dropped he didn't let up for a second i mean that is impressive in its own right but there's also some cause for concern there. Yeah, it, it raises the old question of like, and and it makes you realize too, like the new thing he's been doing with this outfighting and the slow pace, can aren't is that actually like a major technical improvement to old flaws or just a tactical adjustment to cover old flaws? Yeah, you know. Um, and then you have, of course, the Calvin Cater fight, which mm-hmm. I thought again, a very good looking first round from our Allen. There is no questioning that he looked great, that he was in the process of stepping up to a new high in level of uh, competition. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
we had the unfortunate injury right towards the end of the round. And it, everyone agrees it, you can't really base uh, too much off of somebody winning round one against Calvin Cater. Yeah, he did it impressively. He did it very cleanly. But that's the round Calvin Cater loses every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, and it wasn't like Allen was out there. He wasn't doing the Dan Hooker thing. He was he was playing no, out a very tight, but it yeah. was a. Uh, it, it looked like a smart approach and certainly yeah. one that would have been more sustainable would have allowed him to, who knows if Calvin Cater had started slinging leather at him and, and Allen would have brought out that old, just sort of dog uh, scrappiness and found some ways to add more violence on top of this really methodical approach. And it did look to me like, uh, as I said before, an, an improved version of the old Arnold Allen outfighting. I thought his his footwork was a lot more methodical and uh, simple. He wasn't like he he didn't move too much. He looked a lot more efficient and controlled um, than he had in previous fights. And um, yeah, like excellent shot selection, really good placement, worked the body, was working the legs. It looked like the beginning of a really intelligent fight, but the asterisk is you, you can't ignore it. That who knows what would have happened. We didn't get a chance to find out. And so now we have Max Holloway. Basically, like we have this this successive series of steps up in difficulty. And um, Max Holloway is undeniably a much bigger step up, a much bigger step up than either of the other two, as demonstrated in his fight with Calvin Cater. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Holloway, if Alexander Volkanovsky was not in this division, would still be the champion. He is on a tier above everybody else. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I just, uh, I, I, I just don't know what, what to expect from Allen in this fight. I think one thing to point out is that, um, that, uh, one of the few South that Max Holloway has fought was Dustin Poirier. Mm-hmm. And Dustin Poirier used a lot of classic, sort of pretty typical Southpaw tactics that Arnold Allen likes to use himself and wallops Max Holloway. Uh, in particular, you know, like using the Southpaw jab, but also the right hook was a huge weapon for Poirier. Allen does have a good right hook. It's the shot that he was hurting Dan Hooker with the most in that fight. Um, he is a solid two fisted puncher. And, um, you know, it, there are questions, too, about what is the state of Max Holloway right now. He has basically been definitively shut out of the title picture himself. Um, he has been in uh, absolute scads of brutal wars. Yeah. And, um, you know, this this guy has been fighting since he was 20 years old. He is now, what is he, like 31, 32 now? Yeah, let me see. 31. Yeah, he's 31, 31 years old, tons and tons of wars of which that fight with Dustin Poirier was but one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a chance here. I think a bigger chance than I would have thought at any other point uh, in either man's career for uh, Arnold Allen to go out there and put uh, put a bit of a southpaw striking clinic on Max Holloway. But it's Max Holloway. <laughs> and, you know, like... Yes, Volkanovsky figured him out. Mm-hmm. 
Yair Rodriguez got a competitive fight with him being one of the most insane athletic freaks in the world. But he also got his ass whooped for a lot of that fight by Max yeah. Holloway. Max Holloway, who, other than the Volkanovsky fight, has has really been looking not even just as good as ever, but um, more like willing to experiment and add, uh-huh. new, add new tools to his game and try different approaches. Um, and... It's it's just a fight where like I have to pick Max, right? Like, yeah, I I really do think there's a chance. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to learn from that Poirier fight. I think Allen has proven himself to be a very flexible and thoughtful fighter, mm-hmm. but um, it is far and away the most massive step up he will have ever taken, and uh, it's Max, it's Max goddamn Holloway. Yeah, I mean there is there is a chance uh, we have seen Allen can be he can stay very composed. Yeah, uh, for a whole fight we've seen it. He can stay totally one hundred percent on his game. I think yeah. if I'm not misremembering, like the Sadiq Yusuf fight was a fight where Yusuf was like winning a lot of the little moments in yep. that bout, and Allen was just very composed and just kept hurting him. Yeah, or the Mads Brunel fight, the fight mm-hmm. Allen was losing and um, held it together and 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 stayed in the fight and came back to get a, a win, a finish win. Uh, the refusal to break is certainly a, a very powerful uh, asset to have against Max Holloway. Because yeah, it, that, it is very, uh, very valuable, too, because thinking about that Poirier fight and, you know, Southpaw tactics and things like that, I mean, one of the things that, really made that fight work for Poirier was that he was able to stop Holloway's momentum repeatedly as Holloway looked to build pressure. Yeah. He was able to stop Holloway from being able to actually build off of his, his jab and his one, two to more complicated things with bigger, harder shots that he could repeatedly land comfortably in the pocket and sliding out of the pocket, you know, where, where he's really good. And that, that could be something Arnold Allen could do. It's definitely something he can do. Uh, The question is, can he do it for the entire fight and and do it, even though Max Holloway is going to be adjusting and continuing to build the pressure. Yeah. But Allen's a solid counter puncher. Again, his, his footwork is, was already solid. It's improving. mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, not just Poirier with with the specific southpaw stuff, but Volkanovski, like being a super composed counterpuncher is going to work at least in spots against Max because he is going to he is going to walk on to you. He yeah. is going to try to make the fight happen. And and it's been a problem for him against Volkanovski too. So Yep. yep. Uh but that, you know, that also said it's something that guys like Calvin Cater can do and Yair Rodriguez yeah, and uh, Brian Ortega. They all have the ability to be hard-nosed, stay composed, big punching fighters off the back foot. Yeah. I will say I think Allen is, uh, in, in contrast to both those guys, he's, he's a lot faster than Calvin Cater. Mm-hmm. And he's a lot sharper than Yair Rodriguez. Yeah. He's certainly a more technical fighter. He is. He is. Um, 
but yeah, well, at least broad, when he's not charging forward. Yeah, yeah, which would be uh, unless he's going for the kill here, I, probably a very bad idea against Max, right? Yeah, you can see some reason to maybe think you should you should pressure Max so he can't pressure you, but uh, yeah, I, Paul, I would think to, if you if you pressure him that way, he tends to just stand his ground. Yeah. And make you trade with him extend, in extended combinations until you realize that it's really you're not you're never going to be more comfortable than him in that kind of fight. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah, and then of course there are the fights with like Jose Aldo, mm-hmm. who did a marvelous job countering Max Holloway with huge power shots, and it just didn't matter. Yeah. So it's like, are you as good as? A, a massive lightweight in Dustin Poirier, one of the sport's most renowned punchers. Yeah. Um, in addition to a very seasoned, very comfortable and experienced, calm counter puncher. Um, or are you Volkanovsky? And, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that Arnold Allen is either of those things. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Well, it is a prove it moment. Um, I I want to I something in my gut wants to pick Arnold Allen here. Yeah, I get you. Uh just as you say the wear on Max Holloway, the the point he started, he the earliness with which he started his career, it very likely means that it would be pretty surprising if Max Holloway is still an elite top of the division talent in his mid 30s. You know, I mean, we were expressing concerns about this dude's health four or five years ago. Yeah, he he's put himself through the grinder and you don't get to do that forever. And he has done it forever. He got to the UFC in 2012, two years after he started. He fought Dustin Poirier. Mm -hmm. So he has been putting his body and his mind through incredibly high level battles for 11 years. Um, so this could be a tipping point. This could be the point where it's somebody other than Alexander Volkanovsky or Dustin Poirier that can beat him. But yeah, I, I mean, I just, I've never seen Arnold Allen put together the kind of pace he would need to beat Holloway. Yeah. And do it for more than a few minutes and when he did do it he did he got hurt really bad you know yeah. when he did do it against uh against hooker he got dropped and that is something that if he do, if that happens against max holloway i would be shocked if allen built his way back into the fight the way he could against hooker yeah he might not get knocked out holloway's not the biggest puncher in the world but he, you, you give him that kind of momentum. He doesn't let it go. Yeah. So. It's a very exciting fight, especially because there, there, is a, there is a feeling in the air that, like, now is Arnold Allen's time and Max Holloway's time may be passed. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a it's a hard one and it's a tough one to pick. I mean, I mean, like the I think the smart pick just has to be Holloway, but the yeah, the gut pick you get a lot of options. All right, you uh, make these picks all the time. The you have to pick this guy and 
not not always how it plays out, right? Yeah, we're definitely not do we're not we're not have to pick this this guy from a gambling standpoint where gamblers are going to be like, well, I can get Arnold Allen at dog odds in a fight he might win. I'm going to take it. It's just we're trying to guess who's going to win the fight, right? And I, we got to pick Holloway. Holloway opened at about minus one fifty, and he's currently at about minus. Uh, 170 to 190. And Arnold Allen opened at plus 140 or so, and is currently at plus 150 to plus 160. So, Uncle to Arnold Allen, those odds. Yep. He, he's been looking great lately, and it is the kind of, like, we're both saying, this is the kind of game that could be used to beat Max Holloway. It has been used to beat Max Holloway. A lot of what Volkanovski has done to beat Max is to sit back and be a coiled spring. Yeah. And to make it very difficult for Matt, for Holloway to get past throwing his jab and getting countered. And to move into the more, you know, the kind of heavy volume output he put out on guys like Cater and uh, Rodriguez and Ortega. Yeah. And even then, I mean, Allen's even got a little more of like, say, the kicking game of Volkanovsky to add to the Poirier-ness of the approach we're expecting here. I mean, it's it's just Arnold Allen's best fights. They are slow. They are slow builds. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I have yet to see Holloway lose to somebody who's not matching his pace. Yeah. Or yeah, unless it's Volkanovsky, I guess, who dragged him into his pace. Yeah. But even then those fights were like pretty torrid. Yeah. If I'm looking at the stats for those, uh, Volkanovsky landed 200 significant strikes in their last fight. And, uh, 157 and 137 in the two fights, before that. Yeah. They they're only a reduction in pace compared to like Holloway Cater. Yeah. <laughs> Which are, you know, Holloway Ortega like record setting output in those fights. Yeah. So I can't wait yeah. to see it. Very yeah. interesting. Great fight. All right. That takes us to a featherweight bout, Edson Barboza, Billy Quarantillo, and I really only have one question here. Mm-hmm. And that question is, does Quarantillo reset too often? Reset too often. Does he back himself back out into mid-distance to reinitiate an exchange? I don't think he does. But... That is really the core question left against Edson Barboza these days. Is it, you know, if you do what Shane Burgos did and you have like a one-two striking exchange with Barboza and then you take a step back and you reset and you prepare to do it again, Edson Barboza can still kick your ass. Yeah. But if you even, you know, with Bryce Mitchell striking, 
if you just keep the pressure and pour the pressure on, yeah, you can beat Edson Barboza. It's still the same problems, still the same flaws. Let's himself get backed up to the cage too easily. Tends to throw his striking combinations on some some somewhat autopilot, so that if you fire when he's firing, he's not really looking for anything. Even Bryce Mitchell floored him yeah. in their fight. And uh, yeah, you really have to get to a you know for Barboza to win anymore. You, it's always been this way, but now every, more people know it. You really have to get to a point where you have decided that it's too risky to initiate an exchange with Barboza and stay there. Yeah. So I think Quarantillo's madman enough to stay on him and just walk through hellfire to keep the pressure high and win the fight. Yeah, I, I see that as well. Uh, I am still tempted to pick Edson here because... His, he is notably... Quintello is notably slower and yes, yes. less uh, technical than anybody other than Mitchell who has beat Barboza in a long time. Yeah, and I would also say that I, I think Edson has improved in his... Um, I think it's been a long process of getting a little more organic with his uh, pocket punching, probably mm-hmm. going back to like that, that great win he had over Anthony Pettis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of what screws him up against guys like Bryce Mitchell or uh, a bigger, more awkward Bryce Mitchell, like Kevin Lee, um, and why these guys are able to drop him with strikes is definitely the switch up threat. Yeah, is the fact that they pose a really uh, diverse uh, attack, and um, I mean Quarantillo will try to wrestle. Yeah, he will but he's not—he's not like great at it. No, that's true. Um, and you know, there's the fact that yeah, Edson is him in the main is 37. Yeah, he is almost certainly well out of his prime, and will probably only can only get worse from here, but. Um, for all the fact that there are elements of your sort of classic Edson Barboza losses in this matchup, it would definitely be the worst version of the pressure swarmer to beat Barboza yet. Yeah. And I would say not, um, identical to, uh, in a lot of particulars, like, but, but also in many ways worse than say Shane Burgos. Mm-hmm. who Barboza destroyed. It's true. Um, the difference is, is that I think Quarantillo, almost no matter what happens, is 100% psychologically prepared to, like, to lose early mm-hmm. and keep mounting the pressure. That is his approach to fighting. It really is. And... Um, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case with Burgos. Like, I think Burgos can sort of get shut out of a fight strategically. Quarantillo has a one-size-fits-all strategy that he tries to apply uh, with maddening consistency every single time. There, I, I will say, at least from, my, from, from the cheap seats viewpoint, 
there is a core psychological difference in Quarantillo to Burgos, yeah. where Quarantillo seems to love beating people up and hurting people and breaking people. Yeah. And Shane Burgos loves fighting. Yeah. He and loves like flexing on people and doing cool stuff. <laughs> well, he he loves, the, you know, he's a bit like, uh, oh, who, who was I about to think of? I'm going to start I, just saying names. George Washington. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I was going to say he, he's a bit maybe like, um, oh, whatever. It'll, I was going to say like maybe a bit like Paul Felder, but Paul Felder was pretty mean too. But um, maybe like Paul Felder. And that like these are guys that just really like to be in the middle of a fight of a competition. Yeah. You know? They want to be out there going back and forth, eating shots, landing shots. You do something cool. I'm going to applaud that. I do something cool. Yeah. You know, we're both we're both here having the time of our lives kind of thing. He enjoys the struggle. And Shane, er, and Billy Quarantillo, he just wants to break people. Like, yeah. you will never see Quarantillo, like, stop and, like, flex and, like, point and, like, oh, yeah, that was – it's just – no, it's just Nate Landwehr. There's your Burgos comparison. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of someone they... who will even let opportunities fly by in order to just sort of enjoy the moment. Yeah. And Quarantillo is not that guy. Which is why like my question to open this up is does he yeah. reset often? Does he reset too often? Because yeah. that is the point where if you are if you're like that, if you're like, oh yeah, I want to compete and we'll both do cool stuff and let's see you try your move, I'll try mine kind of thing. Yeah. That is where Edson Bar Edson Barboza is just an awful fighter to do that with. Yeah, and, and I will also uh add that um uh a sort of uh unlike Shane Burgos again the last pressure fighter that, that Barboza successfully shut out. Um, Quarantillo, his one-size-fits-all strategy includes starting slow. Yeah. And um, I don't think that's a good idea either against Edson. Like, it's not. No, if you let him... I mean, that's what Dan Hooker tried. Right. You just he, let I don't, him... I'll go out there and start slow and be cautious and trade kicks and just kind of feel my way into the fight. And by the time he realized that was an absolutely unwinnable, miserable idea, it was yeah. far too late for him to. Bar Barboza is massively, is completely focused on, not completely, but he has a massive focus on attritive damage. Yeah. He crushes you to the body. He crushes your legs. He is going to put the kind of damage on you early that will prevent you from building into uh, building into the kind of performance where you might break him late. Yeah. Uh, you have to, people who beat him with pressure, get on him right away. And that is why I'm going to pick Edson Barboza. For all that I think he is faded and is unlikely to do anything except slowly decline from this point forward, I think Quarantillo is just too much, of, too slow yeah. and, too, and too much of a slow starter. It's fair. I'm, I'm going to stick with my Quarantillo pick, but I'm glad at least one of us is picking Barboza. Yeah, I just think he's going to land some thudding shots uh, on basically Quarantillo's entire body in the he first will. round. Barboza started about plus 130, is currently out at plus 140, 
and Quarantillo started at minus one forty or minus one forty five and is currently at about minus one sixty to minus uh one ninety. So I'm not terribly surprised at those odds, but Barboza should be a very live dog here. Yep. All right, that brings us to a light heavyweight bout. Dustin Jacoby, Azamat Mirzakhanov. Yep, uh, we both like Dustin Jacoby. Um, that's not why I'm going to pick him here, but I am going to pick him. Yeah, yeah, I, I came to the same conclusion. I'm just not that impressed with Azamat Mirzakhanov. I think he's a power puncher. Yeah, he's great at it. And uh, clearly has, you know, the this sort of timing and sense of distance to go along with that, to deliver the shots. But like a less athletic Yoel Romero, like those are absolutely essential for those things to be keyed in because he is not a combination puncher. Yeah. He doesn't do an awful lot to set things up other than perhaps just sometimes like bouncing around and trying to shock you with a rhythm change. But he, he is not a, uh, a fighter who presents many layers of offense. Yeah, I was uh, reading Costas. Uh, our, uh, hmm? Is it Fantasy Cases? Yeah, Fantasy Cases. I've never uh, heard him say it, but that's how it looks. Yeah, his latest uh, moves to remember thing. And he had a big thing in there uh, from the last UFC event about stopping strikes. Mm-hmm. Basically, strikes that you land as your opponent is stepping forward that stop their momentum cold. Yep. And that is pretty much Mirzakhanov's whole game is trying to perfectly time you stepping in yep. with something that he can land at the exact same moment. Absolutely. And I just don't think that's uh, the thing you need against Jacoby. This is not a guy who needs to bowl into you. Yeah. Um, to do the damage. This is a guy who uses his jab and his kicks and will just pick away and rack up damage until you are forced to come in. And then he's a pretty solid counterpuncher on top of that. Yep. He's also quite durable. Yeah. He's, he, he got knocked out once by King Mo. It was on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, he's been knocked out maybe once or twice in his career and they were quite a while ago. The other time was by Alex Pereira. Well, there you go. <laughs> he had a referee stoppage in an earlier fight to Michael Dute, but the both only good, clean KO career are Alex Pereira and King Mo. Yeah. And um, and it's been a while since any of those. Yeah. he's He has, I think, sort of leveled up his durability by just getting more comfortable as well. Yeah, he looks a lot. I was really like, I think I missed the Roundtree fight live. Yeah. So I went into it. I'm like, he lost to Khalil Roundtree. That should have been his fight. Yeah. And I watched it and I'm like, you know what? Even in a loss, this is just a good fight from both men. Absolutely. Khalil Roundtree looked fantastic. And I thought, I, I, I can't even recall if I may have thought at the time that um, Jacoby got, should have gotten the decision. Yeah, I kind of felt like watching it, he should have got the decision. Yeah. It was, but if nothing else... He was out there putting volume on Roundtree, and he was yeah. undeterred deterred by Roundtree's power coming back at him. 
yeah, uh, he was very calm and very consistent. And yeah, I think he just continues to improve and just looks like a classier, more experienced fighter, you know, as he should with each fight. Yeah. And um, I think if you look at Merzikhanov and all he really has is a chance to land a bomb or shock somebody who is coming recklessly in on him, that's just not the fight to pick, a, to not the win to pick against Dustin Jacoby. Yeah, if you're looking at Jacoby as a very durable, big, light heavyweight, tall, yeah. rangy fighter who puts a lot of volume, who's learned to work behind his range tools. Yeah, technical. Then, you know, you kind of have to look at, like, Merzikhanov getting third-round knockouts over other sort of short squat, brawling, lower-output fighters yeah yeah and the jacoby fight is just going to be a much different beast so yeah i gotta agree i think the jacoby's volume here carries the day yeah i don't think fighting devin clark and tefan and chukwi is the greatest uh thing to prepare you for like a genuinely pretty good kickboxer yeah um and i mean you know for all that Mirzakhanov could still easily be a perennial top 15, top 10 light heavyweight for his whole time in the UFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just having shocking speed and power in that division and great timing. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it'll get you a lot of places. So. For sure. Jacoby just seems like a, a really bad style clash for him right now. Yep, just just too classy. All right, that takes us to a... Another light heavyweight bout, Iwan Kudalaba, Tanner Bozer. Making and, his light heavyweight debut, I believe. Yes, making his light heavyweight debut, debut after years, multiple, at least two, of getting really pissed at every reporter who's like, you're kind of <laughs> small, shouldn't you be a light heavyweight? <laughs> And he would just bristle all the time. Yeah. Being like, I would have to cut off a leg. Do you know how hard it would be? Yada, yada, yada. And then he lost a split decision to Rodrigo Nascimento. Rodrigo Nascimento. And it's here we are. Yeah. Um, and th- th- this is a weirdly hard fight to call because of this. Because... Iwan Kudalaba, he should have he should have been better than this. Yeah. Given where he started when he came to the UFC. He's just not very good, is he? <laughs> he's just not very good. <laughs> he started that, and I mean it, what it really comes down to, it see or seems to come to have come down to, I think, honestly, is the knockout loss to Magomed on Kalaev. I think that that may have irreparably broken him. Because when he came into the, into the OC, Kudalaba had two things he was very confident in. One was his ability to step forward and be a power puncher mm-hmm. that just takes the fight to people. And the other was to hit takedowns and get on top of people and beat them up. And he didn't win all of his fights in the UFC up to those Ankalaev fights. But they were all competitive. 
they let him show his skill. Mm-hmm. He had reason, you know, he, he had reason to feel like his game was very functional. Mm-hmm. Then Ankalaev schooled him in back-to-back fights. Yeah. And you can say, oh, he was pretending to be hurt in the first one and all that. <laughs> and yeah, maybe he was clowning around, but he was also just getting schooled. Yeah, he, I mean, he was definitely pretending to be hurt. I mean, it was. Yeah. It's still one of the funniest results. It is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was pretending to be hurt, but he was pretending to be hurt because he was getting schooled and yeah. he wanted to try and show Uncle I have, oh, you don't have the, the skill to really hurt me despite teeing off and countering me every single time I step into the pocket. Well, he was he was showing um, a, a a keen ability to read people because if yeah. I if I look at Magomed Ankalaev, one thing I know is that this is a guy who's going to be suckered into being over aggressive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Just pretending to be hurt in order to bait him. That's of all the guys that might work on. This is the one. This is the one. And then they re- they they re- they they match him back up together. And Ankalaev just <laughs> whips his ass. Yeah. Um. Still, again. Given who Ankalaev is, Gulab remains like the only dude <laughs> to yeah. lose that kind of fight to him, essentially twice. Yep. <laughs> and <laughs> what we've seen out of Kudalaba since is a guy who now seems like he is absolutely depending on getting takedowns. Yeah. And he doesn't want to stand and trade with people. That is now just a short term gateway to getting takedowns for him. Yeah. He needs to wrestle. And I mean, Tanner Bozer can't wrestle. Yeah. Maybe that'll be enough. Um, but Bozer is also big and hard to hurt. And Kudalaba is a victim of his own success now because he's so desperate with these shots that he just keeps doing the same thing over and over until he starts getting hurt or starts yeah. getting tired. Yeah. He just, he goes insane. And um, yeah, I'm, I kind of favor Bozer here simply because his like his defining uh, quality at heavyweight was just like relentless, unimaginative consistency. Yeah. And that is something Kudalaba does not have. No. Kudalaba is insane and stupid and mad. And um, <laughs> I kind of just think a guy who just sort of moves around and looks to walk you into one big punch and tries to make it difficult for you to get to him, uh, that just might be enough, especially given the fact that, um, you know, for all that, Kudalaba is a good takedown artist and he does some good work like in the scrambles, but because of that, he doesn't hold anyone down. Yeah, he has so, no interest in in maintaining control. Yeah. So he's going to continue burning energy and continue allowing, um, the bigger man chances to get up. And he's probably just going to get tired at some point and start walking into shots. Now I will say the other thing to note here is dropping to light heavyweight is an absolutely miserable goddamn idea for Tanner Bowser. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All, all he really had going for him was being the quick ag- agile heavyweight. 
Yeah. And, and durability. Yeah. And what we know of light heavyweight is that it will make a fool of a heavyweight's durability because you're not ready for people who, who are just way faster yeah. than the guys at heavyweight. A big part of why heavyweight's a durable A, you're just, you know, being bigger, it's just, you know, you're going to be able to take more damage. But it's also because that's slow. Heavyweights are slower. You can see more stuff coming. Yeah. You know? I think it was and, maybe, it was either Ali or it was Ron Lyle um, who they, whoever this was, fought both George Foreman and Ernie Shavers, two of the most renowned punchers in heavyweight boxing history. And, um, put the difference between them at Ernie Shavers was like your athletic puncher. Yeah. And said Ernie Shavers hitting you was like, uh, was like bang. Well, you know, it was like a, it was like a gunshot. You didn't see it coming and it cracked you and dazed you. George Foreman hitting you was a boom. And I think that's the broad difference between the kind of power you get at heavyweight versus light heavyweight. Yeah. And being able to deal with one does not necessarily prepare you to deal with the other. That heavyweights will hit you with big thudding shots. You just feel the weight of the impact and it pushes you around. But light heavyweights will just shoot you in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Speed is an element of power as well. It is not a division. It it is not a good division to drop down to from heavyweight unless you are a short powerhouse speed demon of a heavyweight, you know, unless you're DC out there who right. is like, you know, absolutely a freak athlete. Yeah. In either division. Who else has done it ever? It's Successor. Randy Couture in a totally different era. Yeah. Daniel Cormier. And it's hard to think of many others. That's that kind of all that comes successful. to mind. As much as we talk about most light heavyweights not having the necessaries to be heavyweights, there's way yeah. more light heavyweights who make a career at 265 than the inverse. Yeah. Heavyweight is, it's just, it's, it's the middleweight dropping to welterweight conundrum, basically. Yeah. yeah. But it's not a more technical division. It's just a much more athletic division. Yeah. So that is a huge concern. I guess I'll take Kudalaba. I mean, I'll take Bother because there's so many ways for Kudalaba to melt down and self-destruct right. that it's hard to pick him right now. And Bozer has never been a guy who beats himself. Yeah, but, that's basically it for me. But it, I'm not at all comfortable. Like, think Bozer, I think you were right when you told people to fuck off when they kept telling you, <laughs> yeah. why don't you drop like heavyweights, you you had the durability to be a heavyweight, and you're like a fast dude there. That was an yeah. advantage. You know, you didn't get. It, it wasn't just size that made it so that Rodrigo Nascimento beat you. It was your complete inability to stuff even a basic takedown. Yeah, you this know? is always the problem with the weight class changes. Is the difficult solution is to get better. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, and I always say this very dismissively, like I'm not mocking people. It is genuinely hard, but that is yeah. why people so often take this tack. Yeah. Is that it is, 
you know, the, the difficulty of cutting weight is a much easier kind of difficulty to like psychologically make your peace with <laughs> than the very long and difficult process of just recognizing what you're bad at and improving your skills. Yeah. It's hard. It is. It's especially hard as you get older too, because it becomes so much more difficult to pick up new skills. Yeah. You know, you, you start getting into your 30s, suddenly the idea of like, oh, I need to learn takedown defense. I'll go spend a bunch of time with wrestlers. And you're just like, wow, I'm just never getting better at this. OK, yeah. So you're saying I I'm not going to become uh, you're saying I'm not going to become a chess grandmaster. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to have to break it to you. It didn't seem important. For me to say it, I thought it would have been obvious already on the face of things. <laughs> no, yeah. you'll be a great you'll be a great grandmaster, Connor. Thank you. you well. There's a lot of them these days. It doesn't mean what it used to. There's like 2,500 yeah. grandmasters. I could do it. Yeah, they'll they're opening the gate. They, the bar is really low now. You'll scrape <laughs> by. Yeah, it's really low. <laughs> Definitely low enough for me to sort of kind of see it through the clouds uh you get the you get the the junior the junior achiever grandmaster badge yeah all right that brings us to a band and bout pedro muñoz chris gutierrez and uh another breakthrough cool. fight another breakthrough yeah. opportunity for for gutierrez yeah yeah, I'm glad he's getting these. I'm glad that that Frankie Edgar fight parlayed into something real for him. Because mm -hmm. we've we've been watching Gutierrez for a while. He went from you know we were talking about Trey Ogden mm -hmm. uh, last week. Chris Gutierrez was a lot Trey Ogden when yep. he came to the UFC. A very negative, subtractive fighter always on the back foot would just kind of throw kicks and, you know, would, would have a counter ready if you really swarmed him, but mostly was there to try to stay away from you and stop you taking him down and just kind of outpoint you and frustrate you on the way. And you can still see that in his game, but he has picked up so much more volume into his kicking attack and married it with, some creative punching that now you, it's a, it's a real actual, you know, he is actually bringing a fight to people even as they chase him basically. And it's cool to see because it was yeah. not, you know, that is a real legit turn for him that has taken him from a guy that when he first got the, I was like, okay, yeah, he'll be here for a couple of years and they'll cut him. After some losses, he'll as he rises up, and now suddenly he's in the top ten. He's done it through his own hard work, mm -hmm. and has genuinely, yeah, just gotten better. And uh, just like, um, just like Alan, like he he appears to have, as his competition has improved, he has answered the, the answered the call, and like gotten meaner and gotten more decisive and um, assertive with while still retaining his like you know, um, defensively sound game. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, uh, 
breaking them down. Oh, this is uh, you or me? It's me. It's you. Yeah, well, um, I think th this is very much a, um, a meeting of two fighters headed in opposite directions. Gutierrez is, as I said, is improving and gaining confidence along with the experience and looking better and more dangerous against um, against these opponents. And Pedro Munoz is doing exactly the opposite. He is, um, you know, has been now for years involved in this process of becoming um, technical. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think it has really been a success story for him. Mm -mm. Like, um, Munoz has, he's gained a jab. He's gained some some footwork, I guess. What he's really, like, lost is just that Pedro Munoz intensity. And yeah, and that the ability he used to have to be a, it was a four-limbed attack. Yeah. You know, Pedro Munoz, Munoz used to be somebody who would kind of square up in front of you and he, he was going to use both legs to kick you. He was going to use both hands to punch you. Yeah. You would have to, you know, you would have to set, he was going to be a hard, impossible to knock out. And so you would have to settle on, do I accept this brawl in front of me? Or do I try and just run away on my back foot? Yeah. And, and, and sort of related to that, I think he's lost some of the kind of connectivity of his older game as well. That Yeah. Uh, when's the last time you saw Pedro Munoz like even go for a takedown? Yeah, right. True. Um, and um, yeah, I just think he's also like he's not very fast. Makes it more difficult. No, he never. It was never speed with him. It was always right. Just the the raw aggression presented to you that you had to handle. Yeah, but it, it makes it more difficult to to keep this game going. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of just think Gutierrez is going to be too much for him to handle. I mean, I look at that fight uh, Pedro had with uh, Jose Aldo and I think, yeah, Gutierrez can replicate a lot of the stuff that made that work for Jose. Yeah. He can out or the fight with uh, Aljamain Sterling. Like he can put out more volume. He can, force Pedro Munoz to reset constantly with his solid footwork um, and just look like a much faster, more subtle fighter. And meanwhile, he's going to be at a range where uh, we know Chris Gutierrez, he's going to be taking absolutely every target that is available, especially mm -hmm. including the legs, which going way back into sort of the early heyday of Pedro Munoz was a tactic that worked really, really well for Rafael Sunsau who is not dissimilar from Gutierrez, uh, who True. carved up Pedro Munoz's legs. Pedro is just not a good defensive fighter. Yeah. And you force him into a fight where he has to sort of follow you around. I mean, uh, as, as Phil said to me just the other day, like he has the, I think, distinct dishonor of being the last win of Frankie Edgar's career. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I think the older Pedro Munoz would have tested Frankie Edgar. 
but the yeah. one that the one that ended up fighting Frankie was a little tepid and just kind I of mean, allowed Frankie to stay in the fight. It, I, I was looking at Munoz's wiki, and there is kind of a telling thing in it. Unfortunately, let me see. When was that Frankie at your fight? Yeah, there's a telling note in Pedro Munoz's wiki. Yeah. If you can you look at can you go uh yeah you should go to his page where it says team on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. What do you see? Team Kings MMA 2010 to 2017, American Top Team 2017 to present. Mm-hmm. Think American Top Team is kind of wrecked him, maybe. Yeah, he did definitely lost, like a very natural lost. Kings fighter before. Exactly. Like you think of who Pedro Munoz was and you think about Kings MMA, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. That makes a shitload of sense. Yeah. And you look at him now and like it's just not there. And it's just I think it's just it was already too late for Pedro to try to completely revolutionize his game that way. He was at a point where now is when you add and fine tune what you already have that works. Yeah. And I mean yeah. You know, I'm not going to speak ill of ATT. They're a big camp. They are a good uh, get get top level pros ready for a fight camp. Mm-hmm. We've seen tons of talent there that works well with them and has had their you know gets lots of good training and all that. But you know, you and me like Kings MMA a lot more when it comes to like. Thinking about oh they've act somebody actually producing a great fighter from the ground up. Like I am gonna put more faith in King's MMA because there's a philosophy there. Yeah, yeah. Cordero just kind of knows what wins fights. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, there are. I, I think it's also just Pedro getting older and suffering some hard losses and trying to adapt to that because I mean, there are plenty of good wins on his record after 2017 as well. Sure. There are. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that he, you know, I'm not saying that ATT absolutely ruined him. I'm just saying that. Yeah. The slow, the slow process of that change. Yeah. Has been a build away from the fundamental things that made his game work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, they also might be a build towards being more healthy for longer because it's not like the King's MMA style is one, you know, yeah. <laughs> it is just march. You you are going to learn to march into the teeth of hell and yeah. fight there. They they, so. they are the the uh, the cronk gym of MMA gyms. They are known for their gym wars and their yep. brutally difficult sparring sessions. Yeah. So. Uh, I think he was also wasn't Pedro also like a black house guy. Yeah, that would make sense. I, I mean, black house wasn't like an official gym. Yeah, it was, it was sort just of the place loose. where high level pro, level pros would just show up and yeah, get a little work sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about picking Munoz here just because Gutierrez is still so back foot heavy and. Back drill Dana had a lot of success marching him down early in their fight. Yeah. You know, uh, he was able to drop him, I think, maybe at one point. 
And yeah, he actually him, dropped him. He punished him with for the spinning back fist that later got him knocked out. But yeah, and take him down, and just you know, uh, Munoz or Gutierrez's boxing game is not nearly as refined as his kicking game. No, and it has, it has also improved. In, in it has improved, but it's it's not nearly as as improved. Yeah. So there is space for Munoz to just you know. Do the King's MMA thing. Get on get on his horse and just outpunch Gutierrez. Yep. But it is notable that when is the last time you saw that? Yeah. Yeah. He tried to pressure Jose Aldo and it was a very you know measured kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. And of all the people that you think I'm gonna walk this dude down and chop him, chop him down piece by piece and break him. He didn't do it against Sean O'Malley. Yeah. Not that he was losing the fight. No. He was just sort of hanging back in what is nominally Sean O'Malley's range. Yeah. Sort of trying to win methodically. And I just think Gutierrez is way too consistent and, again, not picky about the targets that he accepts at that range. He will hit everything available with every limb on his body. All right. Gutierrez is the favorite Opened at minus 230, is currently at minus 195. And uh, Pedro Munoz opened at plus 200, is currently at plus 173. So those odds are slowly getting closer. But uh, Munoz is the underdog here. I guess I'm not too surprised given his recent results, but... yeah. Yeah, I'm glad Gutierrez is getting recognized for his his, his work. Yeah, and I, I think right. he is getting some honestly kind of not, you know favorable matchups to break through and make a name for himself. Yeah. All right, that brings us to a lightweight bout: Clay Guida, Rafa Garcia, and I'm I'm picking Rafa Garcia. Yeah. Um, this is not a hard fight to pick. I it, it speaks only to the fact that it was a good thing Scott Holtzman retired. That yeah. Scott Holtzman did not win and or did not beat Clay Guida because he literally just did not pull the trigger enough. Yeah, he looked like he was asleep. Like, he, he was on the front foot. Clay Guida was, landed four of 15 takedowns, had, you know, some control in each round. Uh, each of the last two rounds, but it wasn't like he just wrecked Holtzman with wrestling. No, he and I outstruck him. I mean, yeah, it was just they. He Scott Holtzman let him go strike for strike with him. Yeah, he just kept getting into the range and then sort of hesitating at the critical moment when, as you said, he needed yeah. to pull the trigger. Let Guida get off first way too often. Yeah, and Rafa Garcia like. There's a danger here uh, that if he can't get his takedown, he's a, he's a little bit like Loopy Godinez in yeah. this way. Yeah. Where if if the takedowns get stopped, the boxing suddenly loses a lot of dexterity. Yeah. So that's a danger here. But Garcia's never, even when that happens, Garcia's never been a fighter to just like, stop and stop working and stop trading. He gassed against Chris Gritzmacher. I suppose that's actually a danger 
more than anything else is that Gritzmacher was able to put him on the back foot and gas him out. But Guida doesn't do that when he strikes. No. Guida doesn't pressure. He is much more, these days at least, on his bike, trying to stay away and not get hurt. Yeah. So. He's still got the stamina. I mean. Yeah. Say what you will. Clay Guida, what, 41 years old. Still in incredibly good shape. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't tend to be that proactive of a weapon anymore. No. More that it's just you're, you can't win a fight by expecting to wear him out. But but that's not what Garcia does, really. He's just, no. He wants to go out there and do the whole run the whole gamut, land big punches, hit a takedown, look for a back take or some domination on the mat, and then rinse and repeat and do the whole thing again. And if he can't, he will at the very least keep pushing forward and trying to punch. Yep. So. Yep, I'm I'm with you. Yeah, I got to take Rafa Garcia. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a relatively winnable matchup for old Clay Guida. Yeah. Not a bad looking. Garcia's not a world beater. It makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I got to pick Garcia. Garcia opened at about minus 230 and is currently at minus 245. Uh, Guida opened at... Plus two, plus 200, and it's currently a plus 213. So odds have moved a bit. They got down a bit closer with Guida down in the plus 180 range, but they've moved back away as the fight gets closer towards uh, in Garcia's favor. All right, that wraps up the main card. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, Go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. The Bloody Elbow Podcast Network is moving. That's right, we're moving from SoundCloud and YouTube to Substack. It will still be available through your current iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher subscriptions, but the main home of the Bloody Elbow Podcast Network will now be on Substack. While most of our audio content will remain free, we'll be asking listeners to please get a paid subscription to support the shows, which are now ad-free. Please give us your email, and we'll send you notices and summaries of every new episode. Become a paid subscriber and get bonus segments only available to those who've pledged their support. Sign up at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com today.